Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. It's, of course, Sunday, May 30th, 2021. This is going to be our 12th sermon on the topic of remember. It's remember secure sons, step six. Today is going to be a battle royale. It's going to occur inside your soul. I mean, a significant clinch with your sinful nature. We will wrestle like Jacob with the persistent, sinister presence of sin in the lives of men and women in this very room today. Then the word of God will turn the focus towards the heavyweight champion of heaven. We will mount an offensive and secure the victory that is ours today through remembering we will become secure sons who have security in the very present realities of our situation and the reality of the secure victory that is being achieved. Are you ready to rumble with the ugly reality of what's going on? So let's clinch. Let's clinch as in grappling with the ugly reality that we all know is true, but would rather not have to wrestle with. This begins... Our six remember starts in Deuteronomy nine and verse six. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord, your God is giving you this good land to possess for you are a stiff necked people. Remember, remember this and never forget. How you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here this morning. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Look, verse 6 starts with the word understand. This word in Hebrew is yada. And what the Lord is saying is that you have to yada. Know experientially. You have to wrestle with. You have to grapple with the reality that you are a stiff-necked people, that you're hard to lead, you're hard to turn, you're stubborn, and even obstinate. Look at what it says in verse 7, in case you didn't catch it while Pastor was reading it. Remember this and never forget. This is the strongest possible injunction that God can give us here. He's saying, remember and don't forget how you provoked the Lord to anger. How you made him furious. How you enraged him. In fact, your very state is infuriating. And the Lord is saying, remember this and don't you forget it. This has been true since day one. I'm talking about the day that you were let out of the cage until now. From day one right up to this present moment, the scripture declares you have been rebellious against the Lord. Now what follows in these next 16 verses is a recounting of the previous five steps of remembering and a clinch with Israel's rebellion at every step. Rather than go through Israel's history this morning, I want to show you mine. When you think about step one, which we have a slide for. The truth is, is standing in the Lord's presence 
The day that I stood in the Lord's presence, I can remember that I was standing as a rebel, incapable of doing anything right. I literally stood with clenched fist full of anger in the moment that he began to speak to me. And in that state, he gave me purpose. He gave me significance. He gave me shalom. He gave me freedom. He gave me power over my nature. He gave me his love and he gave me his kingdom. But at the very moment that his presence first pierced my life, I was standing with actual clenched fist. You know, as I remember step one for me, what I remember is that while I was drowning in despair and the hopeless futility of a rebellious life, he gave me wholeness. He gave me complete security, liberation, he even gave me tangible power. He gave me the ability to be face to face with him. He gave me a new nature and even gave me a clean conscience. He gave me these things all the while I was living a rebellious life. See, when I remember the day that I stood in the Lord's presence, I was consumed with fear, consumed with cowardice. I was consumed with rebellion towards God's purpose for my life. And yet, even in that moment, he gave me the status of a chosen son. He gave me shalom. He gave me security. He gave me intimacy. He gave me a calling. He gave me an all-surpassing connection with his Holy Spirit. And he gave me the empowerment of a son. And he did these things all while I was consumed with cowardice and rebellion towards the God of all creation and his purposes for me. When I remember step two, that you were a slave. And that he brought you out. The day he brought me out of slavery, well, I was freed from despair, futility, rage, powerlessness, domination by my sinful nature, feelings of unworthiness, destruction, and self-loathing. Not only did I forget that Deuteronomy says to set aside a Sabbath time to commit, to commemorate the goodness of God. I was stiff-necked and rebellious and frequently returned to the very same things that I had just been freed from. How could that not arouse the anger of God? Look, I remember the day that he brought me out of slavery. And I was freed from hollowness. I was freed from feeling all alone. Freed from impending judgment that hung over my head. Freed from desperation, shameful hiding, slavery to my desires, and freed from a mind of chaos. Look, I was stiff-necked, rebellious, and I repeatedly did the very things that he freed me from. How could I not yada, know by experience that my lack of integrity was provoking the Lord to anger? As I remember that I was a slave and that he brought me out. I was freed from an unending sense of worthlessness, constant striving. I was freed from being afraid. I was freed from the feelings of being constantly alone. I was freed from my purposelessness. I was freed from my powerlessness. I was freed from my helpless state. 
See, but far from having any righteousness of my own, my stiff-necked rebellion was seen in how frequently I then returned to those very same things that I've read to you, those very same sinful things that I was freed from. Proverbs 26, 7, 26, 11 says that as a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool, or in this case, a rebellious man, repeats his folly. Man, I've been provoking God. I've been infuriating him this entire time. In step three, we remember what the Lord did to Pharaoh and moreover. I know that I've experienced his freeing power. I know that in a yada kind of way. I remember what he did to Pharaoh and my stiff neck rebellion. Because I not only returned to the things that he freed me from, I'm talking 2 Peter 2.20 style, entangled but not overcome. But I also, after being freed from Pharaoh, began to act as if nothing was ever good enough. As a Christian, I was insatiable. I was inappropriately forceful, aggressive to get my way. I drug my feet in repentance. In other words, stubborn. I became calloused to the needs of others. Indifferent. Maybe worst of all, looked critically upon my brothers and developed a skeptical nature while being in Christ. While I was called, moreover, to kill giants, the unfortunate truth is, moreover, after experiencing the goodness of God, I actually progressed in new and creative forms of expressing my sinful nature that were masquerading as righteousness, even while they served the purpose of the prince of darkness. Now tell me, shouldn't that have kindled the anger of God? Yes. Having known through experience the Lord's freeing power in my life and remembering what he did to Pharaoh in my rebellion, I returned to the very things he freed me from. And I also was faithless to trust God over my circumstances. In other words, being fearful and full of cowardice. I also allow alternatives to rule my decisions. That's being double-minded. I'm trying not to make a mistake by doing nothing. That's called paralysis. I'm furious when challenged about my insecurities. That's defensive rage. And I consume with the focus on the lack of my own strength. That's being self-conscious. Look, after knowing the goodness of my father and how he has called me to partner with him to kill these leftovers, I stepped further into the rebellion of my sinful nature. I was unaware that I was justifying my own evil behavior and calling something other than rebellion of what I was doing. The Lord is right in saying that I provoked him to anger with my faithless arrogance. Church, I remember what God did to Pharaoh. And moreover, in this case, my actions were not only infuriating to God as I constantly returned to that which he had freed me from, 
but the ongoing nature of my rebellion. The ongoing nature of my rebellion was seen every single time that I shrink back. Every time that I offer excuses or solace for sin in my life or in yours, that cowardice is a sign of my ongoing rebellion. Every time I operate without transparency, I am displaying the rebellion of my own pride and arrogance through my own self-reliance. Every time I desire and work towards the applause, the affection, and the admiration of the people around me, I am being rebellious as a people pleaser. Every time I'm apathetic towards what I know to be right, that passivity is a marker of my blatant stiff-necked nature. Every time... I'm secretly offended at one of you. And then I withhold my affection. I withhold my absolute effort. I withhold my intensity. That indifference in me is a marker of my rebellion. See, even while God was destroying enemies for me, killing giants, slaying the opposition, I was polluting the very heavenly spring that was watering my soul by seeking to deceive others and myself by excuses that sounded like, little by little, I'll work on this. Instead of realizing that it was a full-on, full realization that these things were open, blatant acts of rebellion towards God himself. And worse, they were there from the start. They were there from day one. And he, God, has every right to be angry with me. This brings us to step four. In step four, we remember how the Lord your God led you. Look, when I remember the goodness of God, the way that he's led me over three decades, reading my list of remembers honestly looks like reading the book of Acts. There's hundreds of salvations. There's dozens of medically verifiable healings. There is miraculous and divine leadings at every turn. And yet, in the very same year that I was saved, and God confirmed the nature of the call on my life, and it was written three times in my Bible through prophetic words, I also publicly slandered the pastor of the church that I was attending. His name was Keith Biggs, and I can still remember the look on his face because there was no reason for it of any kind other than I am a rebel. In 1994, I prophesied to Matthew Pirro he would be a worship leader, a pastor, and grow into an apostolic calling. But also, in 1994, I prophesied to him about his future wife and assigned physical characteristics that were not true or right or accurate because I desperately wanted to be seen as more spiritual than I actually am. In 1997, I prophesied to Justin Johnson because I heard from God, you are the pastor of King's Harvest Church at a time when it seemed impossible. But then I also amended in the same month that very same prophecy to you are a 
pastor in this church because I was desperately scared about what it meant for me if he was the only pastor in a church I was ordained in. In 1997, I saw Pastor Sutherland show up. I saw a black sign with white lettering that said integrity above his head. And I knew in that moment, the Lord of glory was leading me to tell him, you will spend your lifetime in ministry as a pastor. The very same month, I also had to be rebuked by one of my closest friends for saying, you know, I'm not sure about the Wade guy. I think he might have a different spirit. The man looked across the table and said, what does that mean, Eric? Does it mean he doesn't like the food you like? What does that mean? And ashamed of myself, I remember that I was a rebel. In 2011, when I go through the divine leadings, there's no less than 12 documented medical healings that year that I got to participate in. There are supernatural visions. There are prophecies that occurred. And in the very same year, say same year. Same year. I had a wretched, lustful, moral failure that could have ensnared me beyond recovery. In fact, there is no year in which miraculous leadings are not profoundly present in my life. And... There is no year in which my own stiff-necked rebellion in sin is not pervasive. From the first day, right up to standing here in my 28th year, I have sinned horrifically in the midst of undeniably supernatural leadings. In every step of the journey, my behavior rightfully kindles the anger of God. Says my life is full of overwhelming evidence that my father has been leading me. Over the years, he has been a good father to me, leading me by the hand at every major and minor event. In fact, in 1992, when I was born again, within the first couple of months, I remember that clear call that he gave me that I was going to be in full-time or five-fold ministry. Yet at the same time, I was pushing every boundary of sensual desire that a juvenile relationship can push and still be a virgin. In 1994, I remember when the Lord led me to join Eric in doing street ministry. Night after night going out, seeing the lost saved. And at the same time, exalting myself above the other leaders in the church in my thoughts and in my actions. In 1998, all the Lord led me to marry my radiant and beautiful wife, Cassidy. Well, on the first night of our honeymoon, I experienced a demonic and fleshly fit of rage. In 2012, we visited Nick and Lindy's slaughter in Chicago, and Cassidy is writing down prophetic words for everybody in the room during the teaching. At that exact same moment, I failed to recognize that the Lord was moving on her and assigned to her ill motives. In 2013, clear as day, the Father led me to enter into full-time ministry. And I spent the next eight years in self-loathing and faithlessness regarding my ability to preach. Look, the main issue in my heart that is causing me to not see the contrasting rebellion to the spirit-led moments in my life 
is that I do not assign rebellion to my actions. I redefined it in my heart as something like, I'm just, I made a mistake. Um, I'm not being adequate enough or this is just an area that I need to improve in, but it's not rebellion. The truth is, I have been flattering myself too much to detect or hate my own sin. Meaning, I've been rebellious. I've been stiff-necked, obstinate, and stubborn of heart. When a rebellious thought or action comes out of me, I quickly dismiss it. And I assign to myself a noble thought of defense. How can this not anger our God? My, my. When I remember how the Lord has led me in great things, showing his great care, and even in the smallest of details, his faithfulness has been displayed as he's been leading me all the way back. I can remember in 1995 when the Lord spoke to me that I would minister to ministers. And yet in those very moments, the rebellion in my heart rose up and I was filled with pride about what that would mean for me and my ability to stand before people and what they would think. In the fall of 1996, the very next year, the Lord led me into being an educator. He was trying to train me for what he had called me to. But I began immediately to then redefine what God said because the ministry, ministering to ministers didn't take place immediately. So I then redefined everything about what God was saying to me. In 1997, man, I became the husband to the best easer that you can imagine. And immediately, I began an ongoing trend of failing to lead my wife. I mean, it started, when I say immediately, I don't mean metaphorically. I mean the day of the wedding. I mean like on the day of the wedding. When we're leaving the church that we were at, instead of going home, we went to the mall. I mean, that's some bad leadership. Somebody say, that's bad leadership. That's bad leadership. As we get going forward and we start to have kids, I, I have my son. And immediately as my son is getting there, I began to fail to rightly discipline my own son. I was fearful that I would be overbearing. I would be too harsh. And so I let my son be wild, uncontrollable. The truth is, is I was letting him be just like me and be rebellious. Let's fast forward to us getting here almost exactly seven years ago in 2014. I arrived here at LCM far less than the man that I should have been. I arrived here tattered, torn, bruised from my own stiff-necked nature. And what I did to show my rebellion was to try to change and to implement the broken systems, the broken ways, and the broken thoughts of the places that I was just leaving. God has been so faithful to lead me from day one. But I forget just how stubborn I am. How much I provoke and anger him. I'm like Samson. I'm constantly rebellious. In the wrong place. Engaged with things that no man of God should even waste his time with. And that with feelings of entitlement to him to continue to lead me. How can this not anger our God? Which brings us. To our fifth, remember. Remember that the Lord your God gives you the ability and so confirms his covenant. When I remember the goodness of God to confirm his covenant through divine enablements, he has consistently 
continuously conveyed them upon me. I'm talking about things like he gave me the ability to understand the word. It was supernatural. But I also remember how much time I invest in entertainment. He gave me the divine capability to inspire men towards righteousness. Of course, I also remember how often I am critical of the same men I'm supposed to inspire. I see his divine enablement at work in me as a confirmation to see the calling of God in other men. I also remember how often I have been faithless about the outcome of those same men's lives. He gave me the ability to develop leaders into maturity. But I realize how often I have been petulant if I don't feel properly appreciated for it. He divinely enabled me to plant a church, to found a ministry. I also remember how often I've been stubborn to receive any new direction other than the one I thought he already gave me. There's a divine ability to empower pastors to plant churches. But I also remember how rebelliously pessimistic I have been about their abilities to do it. I stand here able to counsel pastors, a pastor to other pastors. And yet, I can't help but remember how often I have complained about the burden of what should only be seen as a privilege over the course of 28 years. And I'm talking about from day one. I have grumbled in the midst of divine empowerment. So that God would be right in opening the earth and swallowing me as Korah was devoured in the book of Numbers. How can these things not anger a righteous God? Church, I remember how the Lord has divinely enabled me and continually confirmed his covenant with me. Starting with the divine supernatural enablement to play the guitar. And after receiving that, I also remember how often my own laziness and apathetic pursuit of developing this ability was. There's a divine enablement he also gave me of propelling people into his presence. And I also remember how often I am filled with fear that I can no longer propel anyone into his presence. There's a divine enablement he gave me to lead a home. And I remember how often I've been faithless to give divine direction to those who are in my home. He gave me the divine supernatural ability to make and lead other Christians. And I remember how often I feel paralyzed and unable to disciple others. And man, there's that divine enablement he gave me to maximize others' marriages. And I also remember how often I am filled with a faithless lack of diligence to maximize my own. And there's the divine enablement to teach the apostles doctrine. And I remember how often I get defensive when I'm challenged about my teaching. There's a divine enablement that he has given me to have inspired preaching that is in view of the entire world. And I remember how often I am filled with fear when delivering a message. Look, my stiff neck 
and rebellious heart has consistently resisted the divine abilities my father has given me. His ways are just and true, and mine have not been. Isn't it right that after all of these confirmations of his covenant, that my actions have provoked the living God to anger? The Lord's confirmation of his covenant with me is so divine. I remember that he has divinely enabled me to have clarity of vision, of be able to have a prophetic voice for people. But I also remember at times how little I've asked him to show me what he wants, preferring to walk in the light of my own fire. I remember how he's given me a divine ability to be able to preach and inspire the heart. I also remember how often I've been fearful as I've stood before you. I remember his divine enablement that he gave me a pastor's heart. I also remember how many times and at times how I can be easily swayed away from God's standards. I remember his divine enablement to put lives in shalom. I also remember how many times I've been internally offended at people who won't appreciate or applaud when shalom is brought to them. I remember that God has given me a divine enablement to strengthen families. I also remember how I can repeatedly ignore sinful ways in my own family in rebellion to God's primary qualification of an actual pastor or a minister. I remember that God has given me a divine enablement to equip future ministers. I also remember how faithless I've been that God would in fact raise up ministers under my watch. I remember the divine enablement to have a right word daily for the families of LCM. I also remember how many times I have angered God by my lack of confidence as I lead you. See, as good as God has been to me to enable and empower me, my constant rebellion from the beginning, I mean from day one all the way up to this very moment, it deserves the fury. It deserves the ire. It deserves the very wrath of God. Churches, you clinch with this truth because we are secure sons and we have stood up and we have shown you every soft spot that we can find in our lives. As you clinch with this truth, that you have always been rebellious. I mean, as you wrestle with this sinful snot, when you grapple with what is grotesque, the clinch serves to highlight something. There has only ever been one righteous son. Amen. Let's turn on this situation. We've clinched. Let's turn on it. Let's highlight that yeah. heavenly heavyweight. Let's appreciate the knockout power of the right hand of God Almighty. Come on. I'm talking about the one and the only who has come from the Father of glory. Amen. Everybody turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 10. Say Jesus when you're there. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Look, church, as you engage with this familiar passage, understand that the Father has had an intention from day one. He wanted to make something known to even the heavenly realms. 
It has to do with the Father's eternal purpose. Church, the cross of Jesus Christ was not a tragedy. It was the greatest of triumphs. The first son in human history to be shown to be free from all rebellion. This is the accomplishment of God in Christ Jesus. Trusting the Father perfectly produces a perfected son. Oh, say that again. Trusting the Father perfectly produces a perfected son. That's why after speaking of what was accomplished in Christ Jesus, the passage says rather emphatically, in him and through faith or trust in him. See, it's only in Jesus that we have any hope of being perfected, any confidence to approach the Father. Without the accomplishment of Jesus, we would only be rightfully seen as rebellious and angering the Lord our God. The writer of Hebrews understood this. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 says this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. As the first demonstrably perfect son in human history, Jesus becomes the source that all true sons can find security in. This happens as we imitate his dependence, his reliance on the Father, his relationship with the Father. We must obey his example. Look, this never means that you sin thinking that grace abounds. It always, somebody say always. Always. It always means that you are at continual war with the rebellion in you that was never found in him. You must trust your father to perfect you as you learn obedience to his perfect son. Again, the writer of Hebrews clearly illustrates this truth. Hebrews 10, 14 says, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The lifetime of Jesus' obedience culminated in one climactic demonstration of sacrifice that was unto his own death. Uniting with Messiah in this way of life credits you with perfection. That's really good news, but the verse goes on. Man, it does go on. Look what it says. He has made perfect forever, like in the past tense. He has made perfect forever forever those who are being made holy amen this can only mean that a man united with messiah in this way of life is credited as holy but also is becoming holy somebody say becoming holy becoming holy see our father proved in the life of jesus that he can transform a human son into the perfect righteousness of god yeah Trusting in Messiah by living in union with Messiah means that you will be transformed into a perfect, righteous son like Jesus. Amen. Paul never preached a gospel that was a license for immorality. In fact, look what he says to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Look, Paul is speaking to brothers 
who were credited with righteousness from God. And Paul says, finally, as in the conclusion of all that he is writing, what he is stating is aim for perfection. This is because any man that has truly remembered that the Lord has delivered him is totally committed to becoming what the Father is. That is perfection. Say it with me. Perfection. Perfection. Well, commitment, that's certainly a, a, a good start. It's kind of cute. But we learned in the Garden of Gethsemane watching the disciples, commitment will never get it done. We have to ask our good Father for heavenly help. For continued transformation. This means we are always acknowledging our rebellion. And always asking him to continue to sanctify us. And there's good news church. He will. Amen. Jesus as the perfect son. Put this in blatant Peshat form for us. Blatant Peshat found in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. Be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect you know what the greek and hebrew word for this is be, be perfect. perfect you can't get a more concise form of communication than this there's no room for misinterpretation there's no enunciation that could make this wrong be perfect all right so right now can anybody do that right here right now did he just not know about your, your inability to do so? Or did he know and mean exactly what he said in Matthew 5.48? That he's expecting you to yearn, ask, and depend on your father to make you into a perfect son. Church, this statement of Jesus in from his own mouth has to be taken as seriously as John 3.16. Jesus did not say this with a, you know, a little wink and a nod at you as if to indicate that he didn't really mean it. He meant it, and he knew his father would transform us continually all the way until it actually happens. Do you want to be transformed? Yes. Well, sadly, this does not seem to be the goal of very many who claim to be in Christ. They mostly seem, I don't know, satisfied. Like somebody who ate a meal and then thought it was their own power or strength just to consider themselves saved. If they only knew the security that comes to a son who knows what he is not, but also knows what the father will make him into if he asks. Come on. Consider the prayer of Paul and his companions in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, 9 says this. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. Look, they're, they're not praying for the salvation of saved people. They're praying for the perfection of every believer in the church at Corinth. See, we're not praying for Israel to come out of Egypt. We are praying for their perfection as sons. Whether we're speaking about nations or you as individuals, this journey is not a one-time legal transaction. It is rather a lifetime journey with the destination of being a secure and perfected son. That is our father's aim. And that is what we must aim for. Amen. Consider what Peter says on this subject. First Peter 5, 10 through 11 says, And the God of all grace, 
who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This verse begins with the statement, the God of all grace. And this should be understood as the God of all power unto your obedience. Yeah. This is distinctly different than him just simply forgiving you. The God of all grace is a statement about his ability to constantly, consistently, ongoingly transform you. And look what it says here, that this God of all grace who is continually transforming you, he will. Like himself personally, come and restore you, make you strong, make you firm, make you steadfast. This is the true evidence of God's grace that's present in your life. Amen. Namely, listen to it, namely that you are constantly being transformed. Yeah. Look very carefully at verse 11. Remembering that this whole process started by you being born of his spirit. Why does Peter say... To him be the power forever and ever. It is because his power is necessary to begin and complete this process in you. When it has been completed, it will only testify to his power. Amen. In fact, it is his testimony in you. Yeah. The Apostle Paul was intimately aware that salvation is a journey instead of a a mere human decision. Look at what he says. Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained all this. Or have already been made perfect. But I press on to press take on. hold. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Was Paul just looking for forgiveness? <laughs> Did he just want to escape the clutches of hell? Is he resting on his own personal infant baptism? Oh, of course. Yeah, I think that's what it is. <laughs> or the decision card that he filled out at the age of eight. Or some other idolatrous sacrament. No, you know better than that. Paul was aiming at perfection. And he knew that he had not yet obtained it. Paul was six steps from the starting line, but not yet at the finish line. Oh, no, no, y'all didn't catch that. He's six remembers from the starting line, but he hadn't made it to the seventh one. See, shouldn't we imitate Paul's attitude as he imitated Christ? Come on, you got to press on, brothers. You got to press on, sisters. Your journey is not over yet. You have not yet made it. You must continue to aim at perfection. If it's hard for you to see Paul, as working through his own remembers, as we've been outlining through the book of Deuteronomy, well, we're going to help you. We want to show you step six in his life because he wrote it into the very word of God. Are you ready for it? We got a slide for you. First Corinthians 15, nine through 10. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Notice that Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. But also says 
that the Father's grace, the Father's power to make him obey, the Father's grace was not without effect in Paul's life and actions. That's what real grace is, even though he was less than the least of the apostles. Listen as I read the next passage out of Ephesians 3, 8 through 9. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Notice in this passage, Paul describes himself as less than the least of all the Lord's people. But he also describes grace as divine enablement to make plain what is a mystery to most. Grace for Paul was the power to be obedient in preaching the gospel. Amen. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy 1 on your screen. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Notice Paul describes himself here in this passage as the worst of sinners, but also says that mercy was shown to him to display God's immense patience and his immense patience through transforming power. Look, let us help you to understand this progression here. In the first passage, by saying in A.D. 54, I am the least of the apostles. Then 10 years later in A.D. 64, he says, I'm less than the least of all of God's people. And then right before he finished his race in A.D. 67, he says, I am the worst of all sinners. Clearly, Paul is getting worse in his Christian walk. No, Paul is getting better. He is growing. He is more transformed and he is more rightly able to see what he's always been, but what God has made him into. Come on. See, a secure son, he can rightly assess his own behavior so that God's grace, meaning God's power to make you obedient, well, it's put on full display. It's the testimony of God and not the testimony of you as a man. That's a big difference. Neither Paul nor Peter were alone in this kind of understanding. Look how the Lord's own brother, Yaakov, referred to the Christian journey of salvation into security and perfection. James 1.4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Look, saints, the overwhelming testimony of the scripture is that we began by standing in the Lord's presence as rebels. Rebels. We have been rebels at every step of the journey since day one. But he has and is freeing us so that we can walk in ever-increasing freedom until we arrive at his perfection. This is a process that we must remember because it is his testimony it's to his character and it's his power that's doing it whose testimony is it his whose character is it his whose power is it his this is about his glory scripturally and historically this is the only biblical view we're going to read to you acts 14 and we're going to start in verse 21 
We're going to read this with you and share some of Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on this issue so that you will be able to persevere in this process all the way unto perfection. Acts 14, 21. We're going to read it to you in the ESV. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Oh, yeah. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. In saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Spurgeon comments on these verses. And we're quoting it to give you the historical perspective that all true Christians have held. Perseverance is the badge of true saints. The Christian life is not a beginning only in the ways of God, but also a continuance in the same as long as life lasts. It is with a Christian as it was with the great Napoleon. He said, conquest has made me what I am, and conquest <laughs> must maintain me. So under God, dear brother in the Lord, Conquest has made you what you are, and conquest must sustain you. Your motto must be, Excelsior, unto the highest. He only is a true conqueror, and shall be crowned at the last, who continues until the war's trumpet is blown no more. Perseverance is, therefore, the target that all of our spiritual enemies take aim at. The world does not object to your being a Christian for a time. If she can but tempt you to cease your pilgrimage and settle down to buy and sell with her in Vanity Fair. The flesh will seek to ensnare you and to prevent your pressing on into glory. It is weary work being a pilgrim, it says. Come give it up. Am I always to be mortified? Am I never to be indulged? Give me at least a furlough from this constant warfare. Satan will make many a fierce attack on your perseverance. It will be the mark for all his arrows. He will strive to hinder you in service, suffering, steadfastness, and in sentiment. In service, he will insinuate that you are doing no good and that you want rest. In suffering, he will endeavor to make you weary by whispering, curse God and die. He will attack your steadfastness by saying, what is the good of being so zealous? Be quiet like the rest. Sleep as others do. And let, let your lamp go out as the other virgins have. In our divinely inspired sentiments or convictions, he will assail your understanding by saying, Why do you hold to these creeds? Sensible men are getting more liberal. They're removing the old landmarks. Fall in with the times. So our great king of glory says... Wear your shield, Christian. Therefore, close upon your armor and cry mightily unto your God that by his spirit you may endure to the end. Amen. See, with perseverance and continuance of the saints who are being perfected in mind, let's read our sixth remember again and in a new light that will secure you as a son. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6 and 7. 
Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. It is, of course, true that you and I have been rebels since the beginning. But that is not the only thing that is true. Somebody say, praise God. Praise God. Look at the six steps and walk through them with us so that your security as a son will grow in the faithfulness of your father. We're going to have this slide on the screen for you. And we want you to notice we're going to start at the top with number six. Remember how you provoke the Lord and that you've been rebellious. Then, after coming to that gripping truth, we work back through the remembers. See, in step five, I'm talking about the ability that he gives you and so confirms his covenant. I can see that the Lord has given me divine abilities as confirmation that I'm in covenant with him. He gave me the ability to understand the word, to inspire men, to see the calling of other men, to plant churches and help others plant churches, even to counsel pastors. So let's wrestle with it. It is true that I've been rebellious. That's true of every son. Except the one and only. Come on. Yeah. But my failures are not fatal because my father is faithful. Amen. He will perfect me like Jesus. And he's confirmed it at every step because he keeps giving me divine abilities. Come on. Look, in step four, we remember how the Lord your God led you. I can see how the Lord led me by his spirit all these years. He led me into being called into fivefold ministry. He led me to those years of street ministry with Eric. He led me to marry that fine woman named Cassidy. He led us to visit Nick and Lindy Slaughter in Chicago and Cass give a prophetic word to everyone in the room. And he led me into full-time ministry. It is true that I have been rebellious. That is true of every son except the one and only. But my failures are not fatal because my father is faithful. Come on. He will perfect me like Jesus, and he has proven it by leading me all of these years. In step three, I remember what God did to Pharaoh on day one, and moreover, moreover, what he has promised to do to all of the hiding giants that were unknown, hidden, ignored, or even secret in my life. He's given me the power to slay the giants of cowardice, of self-reliance, of being a people pleaser, of being passive or indifferent. It is true that I have been rebellious, but that's true of every son, except the one and only. Yeah. But my failures are not fatal because my father is faithful. Amen. He will perfect me like Jesus. And I know it because I can see a pile of dead giants in my rearview mirror. Oh, yeah. In step two, I remember that I was a slave to things like despair, futility, rage, powerlessness, my sinful nature and feelings of unworthiness, even destruction and self-loathing. But you know what? He brought me out of there. It's true that I've been rebellious. That's true of every son, except the one and only. But my failures are not fatal because my father is faithful. He will perfect me like Jesus. I know it because I can see that I am not now what I once was. Amen. Look in step one. 
when we remember the day that we first stood in his presence, I remember that day for me. He gave me wholeness. He gave me complete security. He gave me liberation and tangible power. He gave me the ability to stand face to face with him, to have a new nature and a clean conscience. It is true that I have been rebellious, and that's true of every son, except the one and the only. But my failures are not fatal because my father is faithful. He will perfect me like Jesus, and I know it every time that I feel and stand in his presence. Saints, like Jacob in Genesis, I have security because I am aware of his perfecting presence in my life. I am no longer asleep, but am wrestling with the truth of God. And it is changing my name, changing my walk, and changing my character forever. I will be what my father is. Amen. Like Jeremiah in the third chapter. In the places where I have been faithless, he remains ever faithful. I'm no longer asleep, but I'm wrestling with the truth of God. And it's changing my name. It's changing my walk. And it's changing my character forever. I will be what my father is. Come on, like Ezra in chapter 10, I can say that in spite of my own unfaithfulness, there is still hope for me because I'm no longer asleep, but I am wrestling with the truth of God. And it is changing my name, changing my walk, changing my character forever. I will be what my father is. Like David in Psalm 25, I can say that he does not treat me as my sins deserve. Good and upright is the Lord. Yeah. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his way. Look, I am no longer asleep, but I am wrestling with the truth of God, and it is changing my name, walk, and character forever. I will be what my Father is. Amen. Like David in Psalm 103, our compassionate and gracious God does not repay us according to our iniquities. He's always lavishing his love upon his sons, upon those who fear him. Church, I'm no longer asleep, but I'm wrestling with the truth of God. And it's changing my name. It's changing my walk. It's changing my character forever. I will be what my Father is. Church, I know in the book of Romans, Paul says that God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. In the book of Jeremiah, the Lord states that he will be as faithful to his covenant with us as he is to day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth. So when I see men dressed in white, men that are perfected in the book of Revelation, I know I will be one of them. Oh, glory. Do you want to be one of them? Yes. yes. This is our last scripture for the day. Please put Philippians 1, 6 on the screen. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion unto the day of Christ yes. Jesus. He began something in you by the power of his spirit. My failures are not fatal because my father is faithful and he will carry it on to completion. We should aim at nothing less than perfection. We want to invite this church to wrestle with the transforming power of our God at this altar. 
I say to you, wake up, O sinner. Purify your heart, for the light of Christ will shine on you. Stand to your feet. Father, we give you this time because we want to be transformed into what you are. Lord, we yield to you in this moment and say, come and work in us.